0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Romin. And I'm Michael. The weird portfolio seeks to sidestep market crashes while still achieving attractive long-term
1: returns. Today, we talk to its creator to find out how it works. We also dig into value investing and ask how to find wonderful companies at wonderful prices. For professional reasons, our guest prefers anonymity. But come nightfall, Bruce Wayne dons the mask and becomes Value Stock Geek. Okay, let's get into it. So thanks so much for joining us, Value Stock Geek. It's great to have you on Many Happy Returns. Thanks for having me. Now, I've been following your stuff for a while, and there's a lot of things I find interesting about you. So you run two portfolios, from what I understand. You have your safe portfolio, but it's also a weird portfolio, as you call it, which is super interesting. And then you have your stock-picking portfolio. So maybe let's start with the safe slash weird portfolio and maybe just tell us how you got into investing and how you came to design the weird portfolio.
2: So the weird portfolio uh, was really just a way for me to design my own kind of passive portfolio. Like I wanted a truly passive portfolio that was rules-based, that used index products, that had some protections for drawdowns in the market, that had some alternative assets in there. So for an uncorrelated stream of returns, it was very much inspired by the ideas of Harry Brown. So Harry Brown developed the permanent portfolio, which is 25% market cap weighted stocks, 25% gold, 25% cash, um, and then 25% long-term treasuries. And I basically took that and I really liked the approach because the permanent portfolio doesn't try to predict the future. And I've concluded I have, do not have the ability to predict the future or macroeconomic events. So I liked that approach. It was a little too defensive for me. So I thought 25% stocks was way too low. I want to get a little bit more aggressive than that. It also had a large cash component i wanted to reduce that a little bit because i thought that would also be a drag on returns i also wanted to avoid these kind of large cap bubbles that pop up from time to time so whether it's japan in the 1980s or the us in the 1990s when you have these bubbles they tend to be in that large cap space so i wanted to pivot it to small cap value
1: I think that's kind of what keeps us up at night as passive investors sometimes is that we worry about these big crashes, don't we? And as you say, it can be concentrated in the large cap companies. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That's where the excitement tends to be. And then on top of that, I want global diversification. Like Again, I think my nightmare scenario for investing is that I'm investing in Japan in the 1980s and then I have 30 years of no returns. So what that portfolio winds up looking like is it's 20% U.S. small cap value, it's 20% international small cap or international small cap value, it's 20% gold, it's 20% long-term treasuries, and then it's 20% global REITs. And that, in my back testing, showed that it delivered a comfortable rate of return, it provided some protection against big drawdowns in the market, and then even if you... Used it in a market like Japan, it still would have worked. Like if you owned, you know, 20% Japanese small cap value, if you owned some Japanese REITs, if you had that global diversification, if you had the alternative assets, it still worked even in that terrible environment over the long run. So that's kind of what I settled on for my safe money, you know, the money that I'm socking away for retirement. It's not going to deliver a gangbusters rate of return, it's going to be like, you know, 9%. That's been the nominal return over the long run. The real return is like 5 to
0: 7%. And how did he come up with a name? Weird? Because it doesn't seem that weird to me. I guess for an American investor, it's pretty weird because you don't have companies like Apple in it, but otherwise pretty reasonable, I'd say.
2: I guess. I was just trying to think of a name for it. <laughs> but um, it is it is weird in the sense that gold is very controversial to American investors. It's also very controversial to have absolutely no large cap stock like yeah, When you look at every passive portfolio, there's some component of it that is typically US large cap stock. So it has none of that. So you've got things in there that are Kind of controversial. Small cap value is pretty controversial. Like, will that even work in the future? That's a hot topic in finance. And then I'd say gold is the strangest piece of it.
1: What's your take on small cap value then? I mean, I presume you think it will keep working given that it's 20% of the portfolio.
2: Yeah, and I mean, there's also an allocation to international small cap value as well. So I think it will continue to work, but I also don't think that's the critical question for it. The question is, will it deliver a positive return that avoids these gigantic bubbles? My opinion on small cap value, the way it works, you're basically buying undervalued assets systematically, and then you're selling them when they get expensive. And over the long run, that seems to deliver a more consistent return than kind of the boom and the bust of large caps. So like, if you look at the data in the U.S., Every decade, small cap value tends to deliver a pretty consistent rate of return. It's like 10%. And then meanwhile, with large caps, you'll tend to have these decades where it's 20%. And then you have a lost decade where small cap value, it chugs along and it delivers a return decade after decade.
0: When you were doing your backtest, did you use the data from portfolio charts a lot? Because I noticed that in that data set, but also in the Simba spreadsheet, which is published by Bogleheads. Small cap value is a real standout factor tilt. It really does stand out compared to the other combinations of market cap and value and growth.
2: Yeah, definitely. It definitely helps all of those portfolios. And I've interviewed um, Tyler, who made the Portfolio Charge website on my podcast. He identified three kind of ingredients in portfolios that really boost returns and small cap value is absolutely one of them. And I've also used Simba's backtesting spreadsheet. That's another great resource. I I love that too.
0: Another point is how you get small cap exposure. So let's say that you go for the Russell 2000 versus the S&P 600. There is a kind of quality filter with the S&P 600, isn't there? Companies have to be profitable, for example. Do you have a view on which is the best way to get exposure?
2: Yeah, I think if you look at the data, they all tend to do similarly. But I agree that the S&P 600 small cap value does slightly better. So that is probably a better index. And you could access that. The Vanguard product would be VIOV. There's also, since since I wrote that book, Avantis was not well known at that point. At least I didn't know about (laughs) about some of their products. So they were were still relatively new. But they also have much more focused value ETFs. And I have started allocating to some of their products. Like AVUV is the U.S. small cap value. And then at the time I wrote the book, I kind of settled on international small caps. But they also have international small cap value now. So I've started allocating to that as well.
1: You don't realize, as an American investor, how lucky you are to have all these choices. In the UK, there's one US small cap value fund, and I don't think we get any international small cap values. We just have to cobble together what we can.
2: Yeah, I, I hear that a lot when I talk to international investors when they read the book, The Weird Portfolio, and they're like, well, how could I apply this? And I don't really know a lot about the options that are in different countries. But yeah, it's a common thing where this ETF revolution seems to be very US focused. I hope in the future that changes because they are great tax efficient products. But yeah, I I would love to see that those options expand internationally.
1: Yeah, we have a lot of ETFs, but they're kind of the real main building block ones. We don't have the deep cuts that you might have in the US where you can really get any kind of exposure you want. The other thing about the weird portfolio that intrigues me is the gold component, which is, like you say, also a bit controversial, especially at 20%, right? That's a chunky allocation to gold. What do you hope it provides to the portfolio?
2: I was talking to a guy, uh, Jared Dillian, on my podcast, and he had the best way to put it. He said that um, gold is the Dennis Rodman of a portfolio, where like Dennis Rodman on his own doesn't actually like perform. I don't know a lot about basketball, but basically the way that he framed <laughs> it was... Dennis Rodman was great, I think, at defense, but he didn't score a lot. And, you know, on a team, he worked very well. I think a gold is the same way. Gold in a portfolio with other assets performs well because it does completely different things than what your bonds and what your stocks are doing.
1: Is Dennis Rodman the guy that went and met Kim Jong-un in North Korea? Is he that guy? Yeah, he, he's a lunatic. Yeah, he's a complete lunatic. He's certainly doing different things to the rest of the portfolio, isn't he? <laughs> But in his
2: basketball career, he was apparently good on teams. And that's how Jared put it. I thought that was a funny way to do it. And when you look at the data, that's kind of true. I mean, gold did very well in the 70s when bonds and stocks weren't doing as well. Gold did very well in the 2000s when bonds and stocks weren't doing well. And then it stands to reason that people will flock to this asset during very uncertain times. You know, even if you have some doubts about it, you can look at certain events like COVID, for instance... I noticed during the COVID crash that when you went to the actual like gold bullion websites, the gold was getting sold out. So I think that that relationship is still there. And then if you have some physical gold, it is something that you can hold on to and it will retain some value. Um, it won't deliver the same returns as stocks. But if you have it in the back of your mind during these big market events that, oh my God, what if the dollar collapses? Or, oh my God, what if everything really gets bad. You can ha- kind of have some faith that there's something in your portfolio that can preserve your capital. You have at least 20% there that can help.
1: Is it just, if all else fails, I've got my gold?
2: Yeah, there's there's an element of that. And then there's the element, the more logical element in the data, which shows that it does help a portfolio. Like One of the things I looked at that was pretty odd was um, a portfolio that was half US stocks and half gold. And the shocking thing to me when I backtested that was that that outperforms both stocks and gold, like where you have a 50-50 portfolio, you rebalance it every year, whatever did better, you put it into the other asset. And that kind of showed to me, okay, in a portfolio, this is an asset that can help things. And the data does show that.
0: Do you think it's kind of distorted by the 70s when we just came off the uh, Bretton Woods system and gold kind of went crazy? And in fact, you know, we're still in a drawdown from 1980, January the 1st, in real terms, at least, for gold.
2: Yes. I mean, the way that I look at that boom in gold, it was more of a product of price controls for gold that had persisted from the 30s through the 70s, where during the depression, gold prices went wild. They started increasing dramatically during that actual crisis. And then we were on the gold standard, so it started to cause problems with our monetary system. So at the time, FDR banned private ownership of gold and then bought everybody out at $35 an ounce. If you had gold, you went to the government, and it was $35. And that was significantly higher than what it was a few years before. But when they set that $35, and then they created the Bretton Woods system in the 40s, and then they tied everything to the dollar, and then the dollar was tied to gold at $35, it basically acted as price controls from the 30s through the Nixon shock in the early 70s. So I look at it as more of like there were price controls for 30 years and then suddenly they were lifted and the price exploded like they were artificially suppressed during that time. So, yeah, I agree. That is a big part of the returns. But another way to look at it would be also the boom in the bus that you see in different asset classes. Gold has booms and busts, stocks have booms and busts, and the key is, like, are they happening at the same time? And, like, even if you were to backtest a portfolio to, say, 1980, like the peak gold price, gold still works pretty well because of that performance it had in the 2000s. Now, I don't want to push gold on anyone. Like, if you're not comfortable with it, you shouldn't allocate to it. But um, I took a look at the data, and I think... I think it can help a portfolio, and I think 20% is reasonable. If someone wanted to add it to a portfolio, they could experiment with different allocations. Maybe 10% is right for someone. Maybe 15% is right for someone. But from my perspective, the data was helpful. There's also an element of me that's a little like, well, if everything else burns, I have something that will at least preserve some of my capital.
1: But don't you have to go and collect your paper gold somehow, like <laughs> make your way down to the Bank of England vaults or wherever it is?
2: Yeah, that's another controversial thing. Like a lot of people will say you own only paper gold. But I mean, these ETFs, like one of the ones I use is SGOL. They are backed by physical gold. And then I do have a little bit of physical gold that I keep in a safe deposit box.
1: Oh, now we know why you stay anonymous. It's, a, it's, an, <laughs> insignificant,
2: <laughs> it's an insignificant part of my money, but um, I do have a little bit.
1: I mean, I just find gold so counterintuitive in a portfolio for the reason you said, which is that gold itself is really crashy, but when you mix it in a nice recipe at the right amount with all these other assets, it can make the portfolio less crashy, which is a hard thing to wrap your head around when you're just starting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I think it makes sense just like if you view gold as some kind of asset that people flock to in times of trouble, you look at the price action And that kind of bears out, like in the 80s and 90s, you had a wonderful time for the global economy. Gold did terrible. In the 2000s, you had a very terrible, rocky time for the global economy. Gold
0: did wonderful. But like you say in your book, which is actually very good, I've read it twice now, I think, uh, The Weird Portfolio. I think that's the name of the book as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. But you talk about the risk premium you'd get for gold, and you make the point that it just tracks inflation long term, like any commodity, I guess. So that's a kind of long-term expectation, whereas equity, you'd expect to have at least some kind of premium above inflation.
2: Yeah, that's true. If you trace the data all the way back to like the 1870s, then yes, it does basically deliver a CPI rate of return. And then you have these bursts of activity when things are dicey, like the depression, like the 70s or like the 2000s.
0: I think of gold more like a a drunk at a party where, you know, they're kind of slumped in the corner, they don't say anything. And then just occasionally they just come out with these brilliant utterances. Uh, I think of gold kind (laughs) of like that. It does nothing for a long time and then suddenly.
1: I mean, it did nothing for a long time because it was capped by the US government, right? I mean, it's quite a thing in the 30s when they just said you get $35 an ounce, you can't hold it privately. Imagine if they did that with Bitcoin now. You get $35 for your Bitcoin. (laughs) That's imagine the uproar. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it would be it would be quite controversial. And I worry they could ban Bitcoin completely. I think the Chinese did that. These things are are unpredictable. It's very whenever you study history, if you think something is unprecedented, if you dig back far enough, it's probably not that unprecedented. Shocking,
1: wild things can happen. So how has the weird portfolio done for you since you implemented it? Has it done what you hoped?
2: Um, it's done okay. It did very well during the covid crash. That was great because the overall market was down like 20, 25%. And then that this portfolio was down like 10, 15%. So, and gold was one of the things that helped. Long-term treasuries helped. Um, It did have a 20% drawdown in 2022, as all of these portfolios did because of the drawdown that you saw in treasuries.
1: There wasn't very many places to hide, was there, in 2022? The UK. That was a great place to hide. (laughs) Yeah, you could hide in the UK.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, Gold held up well during that period, and that actually really held up the portfolio. Small cap value did pretty well. It was down only 10%. But the real test will be, I think, during the next major bear market, how it holds up. And we really haven't had a major bear market since since I implemented this. My expectation would be long-term treasuries are going to do really well. Gold will probably do okay.
1: Well, now yields are higher. You've got a better chance of treasuries hedging stocks, I would have thought.
2: Yeah, I feel like the worst is over for treasuries. Um, So we'll see what happens. But I've been happy with it. It's been a portfolio I've been able to stick with. And I think that's the key thing.
0: And what was interesting, actually, there was an article about the weird portfolio by Tyler on the Portfolio Charts website. And one of the points he was making is that if you look at the returns for the portfolio in different currencies, it also does very well. And I mean, I, I kind of joked about sterling, but. One of the benefits of sterling is that it devalues when U.S. stocks are selling off. So as U.K. investors, that kind of helps us having a currency which is a risky currency. So we've kind of got a hedge built into our currency. But is that true that generally for different currencies, you mentioned Japan, it does very well. Is that true for other currencies, the euro, for example?
2: Yeah, it's true for a lot of different currencies. You know, at least the major ones that you can look at, like the yen and the euro and pound sterling. But yeah, that's definitely true. It holds up in different markets. And for me, that was a key thing I wanted because I have this fear that the U.S. could slip into a bubble and it could have a Japan style series of returns in the future.
1: And is that fear based on potential overvaluations at the moment, particularly of the Magnificent Seven kind of stocks?
2: No, I mean, I had this fear. It might be psychological makeup. It might be from consuming, you know, too much content from the Perma Bears when I was younger. But, but um, I do have this fear that what if we're on the brink of another depression? Like, I just have that fear that what if that happens again? Like, I certainly expect fifty percent drawdowns to happen. I've seen two of them in my lifetime. If you go back to the '70s, there was a third one there. Another thing in the back of my mind is what if there is another 80% depression-style drawdown? Nobody really talks about that. I think it could possibly happen again, and I want to be prepared for it if it does.
0: So how often do you rebalance this portfolio? Because let's say there was an 80% drawdown. The small caps in the portfolio would get completely destroyed, I assume, because obviously you know, companies like Microsoft would go through it fairly well. But if you're rebalancing, essentially you're going down from I don't know what would happen to small caps. You know, if markets go down 80% overall, small caps, maybe 90.
2: Yeah, that's what happened during the depression. Small caps went down like 90%. Small cap value went down
0: 90%. So how would you kind of rebalance through that kind of crisis? So
2: currently I don't have to rebalance it because every time I get paid, I'm putting money into the portfolio and I just put it into whatever's light in the portfolio. And that seems to bring it into balance over time. But from practical terms, I would say if you owned it in a fixed allocation, you do it once a year. You rebalance once a year. Now, I did model this through the depression where small cap value had a 90% drawdown. During that time, gold did extremely well. Long-term treasuries did extremely well. So the portfolio had a 50% drawdown during that time period. So that's pretty much my expectation. My expectation is if the depression happens, this portfolio will lose half of its value. But keep in mind, this is during a time when other equity-only investors will be down 80 to
1: 90%. But the long-term goal of this portfolio, I guess, is that you'll earn a little bit less than if you held just the total stock market, probably, but with much lower volatility.
2: Right. And much lower drawdowns during those kind of extreme market environments like 2008 or like the early 1930s or that type of thing. Um, An ideal scenario for this portfolio would be the early 2000s. That was a time period when this portfolio actually delivered returns through the whole period of time because small cap value did pretty well. Gold did well. Long-term treasuries did well. But uh, yeah, during a major crash, major recession, Or a depression, I would expect it to lose money, but significantly less than the overall market. And the goal is this is something I want to be able to just kind of hold for 50 years, stick to the plan, and not really have to worry or try to predict when one of those events is going to happen.
1: Do you think the biggest danger would be FOMO? Like, if you lag the market significantly over one or two decades, you might get tempted to switch out of this and embrace the market cap funds?
2: Yeah, I think people need to, when anybody is coming up with an investment plan, they need to think about their own psychological makeup. So for me, FOMO, I don't feel it at all. Like, I do not care. Like, if markets are ripping and I'm, I don't care about that. The problem for me is fear of loss. So the problem for me is if stocks are down significantly, I know a part of me is going to be thinking, what if this is it? What if this is the next depression? And I need something that will help me there. So you got to look at yourself and figure out, like, what is your thing? For me, it's fear of loss. It's fear of, is this the big one? But FOMO, I don't really have that issue. But I agree, if FOMO is a thing for you, if you are jealous when you see a big hot bubble going on and other people are making tons of money, this probably is not the portfolio for you.
1: What if I have both FOMO and fear of loss? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to tell you then.
0: (laughs) But in terms of ulcer index, that's the measure of, you know, how deep and how long is the drawdown on the portfolio? You know, if it does crash, how long does it stay down? This one actually comes out pretty well, doesn't it?
2: It does. Yeah. The longest drawdown for the portfolio is about five years, and that's in real terms. And the drawdowns for most portfolios, including 60-40, which shocks a lot of people, is about 13 years. And if you look at U.S. stocks, that was a twenty twenty five year drawdown from the total drawdown to recovery. And I don't think most investors think about that. Like, can you actually have 13, 20 years where you don't make any money? For me, I think that would be a tough thing to swallow So when I looked at this portfolio in the backtesting and I saw that, you know, the longest drawdown was five years, that seemed pretty good to me.
0: And just looking at the returns, I mean, I was scanning through the portfolio charts, graphs, which are just great. And they kind of summarize various aspects of a portfolio. The one that really worried me, and there was only one, I think, was the one which shows you the rolling 10-year returns. So, you know, you'd go from 1980 to 1990, 1981 to 1991 and just roll that forward one decade at a time. What seems to be happening recently is that it seems to be kind of coming off the boil, as it were. You know, the return's to be coming down quite a lot recently over the last 10 years or so. Have you noticed that?
2: Yeah, the last decade has been bad for this portfolio, but it's still delivered an, an okay rate of return, but nothing like it did in the past. I would attribute that to a few different things. I would say that it's the underperformance of small cap value would be one of them. I would say that it's very low yield in the long-term treasuries. That's another aspect that's going on. It has a ton of international and international has underperformed in recent times. And then since 2013, gold has... It didn't do particularly well from 2013 through 2018. It's picked up since then, but overall, the decade hasn't been great. So you have multiple assets in this portfolio that have kind of had a, like a not great decade. That actually encourages me because I think a lot of these assets are looking attractive now where you've had international and small cap value do poorly over the last decade. That will probably turn at some point. And then your treasuries are yielding much more than they did in the past. So. My hope is that it will do better in in the next decade.
0: I was intrigued by the REIT allocation, because obviously that's one thing that you don't have in the other kind of similar portfolios like the All Weather or the Harry Brown thing, the permanent portfolio. So the way I always think of REITs is they are highly correlated to the domestic equity market. So when you think about diversification, do they offer a separate source of return, which isn't correlated to the stock market? they kind of don't. So what do you think they add to the portfolio? Because one of the things that Tyler says is that you split it 50-50 international REITs versus domestic, which is fairly unusual.
2: Yeah, everything is split 50-50 in the portfolio between US and international to get that kind of global focus. So for REITs in particular, REITs tend to perform a lot like small cap value. So you could argue, why not just own more small cap value? That's a valid argument. But what I like about REITs are like the income focus. I think that that helps provide a steadier stream of returns. I also think that REITs offer some inflation protection over the long run, simply because over time, real estate values at the very least should rise with replacement costs over time. So even though the data shows that all this is a small cap value, I think that there's aspects of it where I wanted a large exposure to it in my portfolio.
0: And any particular sector composition you like or dislike? Because obviously at the moment, office space, not so good. Retail as well. You know, retail is moving online. So there are sectors which are problematic. Would you tilt away from those or just keep it broad?
2: I just keep it broad. So I'd, I'd agree that commercial real estate is probably the most troubling part of a portfolio, like you could argue that commercial real estate is in terminal decline. But if you look at most of the funds, commercial real estate is only like 20% of the overall fund. A lot of it is residential. And then they're diversifying into other things like data towers and things like that. So I'm comfortable with the broad exposure. As for commercial real estate, now my opinion, uh, like I, I agree with you, it's probably in terminal decline, but you, don't, you never know with these things. Like that's the value investor in me where who knows, like, th- that could change. Like, th- it might not be in terminal decline. Work from home might not be as big a deal as we thought it was. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily want to sell out of that right now.
0: Investment strategies are as much about you as they are about returns. If you want to discuss strategies like the Weird Portfolio and many others, why not become a member of our community? You can join a
1: thousand like-minded investors at PensionCraft.com. So we've talked about this weird portfolio and how you've designed it, ideally that you can hold it for your whole life, I guess. That's that's a goal, yeah. But then the other half of your portfolio, or I don't know if it's half, but the other slice of your portfolio is a speculative stock picking portfolio. We might call it the fun portfolio. Roman has one, which sometimes delivers fun and often doesn't. <laughs> I don't know how, how yours does.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, like I was traditionally a stock picker before all of this and basically over the last 10 years... And my struggles with stock picking and, you know, trying to predict macro and all that stuff, I developed the weird portfolio. I've, I've been stock picking for 20 years, basically. So that's where the world portfolio came from. But when I did that, I didn't want to give up on it. I didn't want to just stop picking stocks just because I enjoy it so much. I think it's a great intellectual pursuit. Every time I dig into a new company, I, I'm learning something new about the world. And I like doing it. So um, I didn't want to give it up completely. So I I have a portfolio where I actively pick stocks. I try to do it in a very responsible way. You could call it a fun portfolio or a speculative portfolio. I'm not out there day trading or doing wild things in it. I'm basically trying to identify really good businesses and get them at good prices. But yeah, for me, I, I just enjoy it too much where I didn't want to give up on it.
1: And I'm guessing your approach to stock picking, given your name, Is a value-based approach? Yeah, and it
2: it's evolved over time. It used to be much more um, like deeper value. I I was much more quantitatively oriented, where I would buy screens of cheap stocks. That became kind of difficult for me during COVID, when I owned like lots of mall retailers and energy companies, and oil was going negative. And I took uh, I took a step back from that, and I was like, well, do I want to just own this basically screen of cheap stocks where it's so stressful to hold. And I'm like, maybe I, I wanted to do something more like how Warren Buffett does it, where you identify a really quality company that you can hold for a long period of time, try to get it at an attractive price. So I, I drifted, I started out more Graham, and now I'm definitely more on that Buffett 80s and 90s style of investing. On my Substack, what I do is every single week, I look at a new company. I just pick a company and I say, okay, this week I'm going to research this company. And I go through it and I try to determine like, is it a wonderful company or not? If it is a wonderful company, it's usually too expensive. And then if it's a wonderful company, I add it to my watch list. If it's not a wonderful company, I toss it to the side and say like, okay, I'm not going to look at this anymore.
1: Okay. So what are you looking for in a wonderful company? What's a wonderful company to you?
2: A wonderful company to me is number one, a company with a moat. So that's a company with some kind of enduring competitive advantage where I am confident that this business isn't going to get disrupted in the next decade. So it's not a business where if a recession comes along, this business could be in mortal jeopardy, which is like a lot of the companies I own during COVID would have been in mortal jeopardy if that continued for an extended period of time. So this is a company that um, has some kind of enduring competitive advantage. So an example would be like a defense contractor. Like defense U.S. defense contractors are never going to go out of business. They have a client who can print money. World peace isn't going to happen anytime soon. Lockheed Martin is going to be around 10 years from now. Google, yes, there's some concerns about whether it can adapt to the age of AI and everything. But I'm pretty sure in 10 years, people will still be Googling things. People will still be drinking Coca-Cola. They'll still be eating Frito-Lay product, et cetera. So that's the moat. Um, The other thing is, does it generate returns that exceed its cost of capital? So if you look at any company where pretty consistently their um, returns on invested capital are below their weighted average cost of capital, you pull up the stock chart, it's probably going to be a mess. So you don't want to hold on to stocks that can't beat their cost of capital over the long run. So I want companies that can consistently generate High returns on capital. I want companies that don't rely on debt too much. I definitely look for low debt levels. I want companies that have demonstrated resilience in the face of past recessions. A lot of that is so I don't, I'm not tempted to sell during the next one. So if a company is was able to consistently generate income and cash flow throughout the 07 to 2011 period, that gives me some confidence. And if there's some logical underpinnings to that, like this is a product that isn't going to see demand crash during a recession. Like for instance, autos, if the economy goes into a recession. Autos always crash spectacularly. So you want some recession resilience in there. Those are the big things. I have, I have a checklist that I run through for every company I look at.
1: Yeah, I saw on your website, you've got a checklist that's got about 10 different points on it. And I just went through it I thought, yeah, these all make a lot of sense. But can you find a company that ticks all these things?
0: Oh
2: yeah, I I found a lot of them. Um, there's a lot of companies that tick all of those boxes. Right now, every company in that that I own right now has meets all of those criteria. The hardest criteria is always valuation. So, is this company at a discount to where it normally trades? Normally, you look at a good company and it's not an attractive valuation. But what I'm finding is if I just wait a little bit sometimes they'll pop up and they'll, and they'll be at an attractive value.
1: So what's a good example of that then when you waited and then it was like, wow, now's the time to buy, finally.
2: A great example was Meta, although I moved a little bit too early with it. I bought it like in February of 2022. So I've always thought Meta is an exceptional business. Um, it's basically the best advertising platform in the world. Most advertisers will tell you that is one of the best tools. Facebook, Instagram, but it was always like a perpetually high valuation. Well, in 2022, you got the pitch. At the lows, it hit eight times enterprise value to EBIT, which is extraordinary for that company. That was one great example of a company I never thought I'd ever have the chance
1: to own. Do you have to be inherently contrarian to run a portfolio like this?
2: Yeah, I think you have to have some of that in you where you have to be able to say the crowd is wrong, but a lot of that helps when you just look at the results of the business and you've already done work on the business. So, you know, one of the things that I decided to move on to this approach was what I used to do was when there was a big market crash, I would run a screen and then I'd go through the screen and I'd research all the companies in that screen and I'd kind of have to scramble. Like an example would be December, 2018. Like there was a kind of a mini crash, the market was down like 10, 15% or whatever. And then I'm going through the rubble and I'm trying to find some good opportunities. With this approach, I've already done the work. I'm already tracking this watch list. And then it's really easy to just say, like, is this business permanently impaired? Is this problem temporary or permanent? And then you can buy if if that's the case. If it's temporary.
0: I do a similar thing with indices. So, you know, when the US banking sector had a little bit of an issue with following the silicon valley bank default you know i thought well the us is still going to need banks so i bought the index but i think the problem when i always think about you know can i beat the market i always think well what's my edge in your case it seems to be that you have an analytical edge at least that's the thesis i guess you know you've got the same information as everyone else but you can get better insight into it and maybe be patient in terms of when you buy How do you see your edge materializing? Where does it come from?
2: Yeah, I think that the edge is that I can look at a company objectively. I'm not in a panic mode when I'm looking at that company, where I think a lot of people are just looking at kind of the recent price action and assume something must be terribly wrong with the company. But I think if you've already done the work and you've gotten comfortable with the company, you can make the decision to hold. And I'd say the other thing would be I'm willing to look beyond like a few quarters or years. So one of the criteria I look at would be like, am I willing to hold this company for 10 years? I'm not necessarily going to hold it for 10 years, but I'm willing to really just look beyond whatever the current issue is and say like, all right, I'll I'll hold this for five years and it might suck for a year. But over the long run, I think this will do okay. And I think most people are more focused on what's happening in the next quarter or what's happening in the next year. You can't really look beyond that.
0: And do you have a kind of valuation target to exit the trade eventually? Do you have a DCF model that says this is the price that it should be, and if it goes too high, then I'll sell?
2: Um, I don't really use DCF models. So I used to, when I first started, I tried constructing them. And what I always noticed was, oh, the companies I'm looking at tend to have a really high free cash flow yield currently. So then I started to realize, oh, well, maybe I should just buy companies with a high free cash flow yield and that will yeah. have a decent margin of safety. And then a major thing I look at, especially with these quality companies, is trending in multiples. So a challenge with a lot of these companies is you're not going to see them in a screen because they're not going to fall to like, you know, Meta is an extreme example, fell to eight times. But a lot of times they drift around in a range and at 15 times it's a bargain. It's not going to pop up in a screen. But I look at long-term trending in multiples, and that's usually how I try to determine my my entry points. And then I want to see a decent free cash flow yield that at least exceeds the market multiple and exceeds the, uh, the 10-year treasury.
1: And how do you know when to sell? So that's a complicated question. Um, <laughs>
2: ideally, I won't have to sell them. I, I would love to just own a company that doesn't really get too expensive and can continue to grow and provide decent returns. But similar approach. I'm looking at the multiples. I'm looking at sentiment, and then I'm trying to say, like, all right, well, this is on the higher end of where this thing normally trades. Perhaps I should reduce or sell out of it.
0: So maybe some of the screening criteria fail. So let's say the CEO decides to smoke pot on a podcast, or (laughs) or decides to slag off his advertisers. You know, would that be an exit reason?
2: Well, um one of my criteria in looking at a company is is management sketchy,
1: so that company would have never met that criteria <laughs> so, uh, so well, you banked on the CEO who was going to beat him in a cage match, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I, I went with uh, the more boring of the two, like I don't want to make this an Elon Musk podcast, but but um yeah, to me, I've always thought he was kind of sketchy. I don't really want to have anything to do with any company he's involved in.
0: But seriously, it, you have certain screening criteria. Could that be a reason to sell the stock if it fails those screens?
2: Yeah, so the, one of the things I do on, on my blog is I'll go through every year and go through that checklist all over again and make sure that it still meets all of that criteria. And yeah, one of my criteria is what's the condition of management. Now, I'm not looking for necessarily superstar managers, but yeah, if management seems to have gotten unethical like that would be the major red flag like are they sketchy so that's how i frame it like is management sketchy so that would be someone who is spreading lies that would be someone who is using the company as a personal piggy bank that type of thing
1: where do you see the opportunities at the moment at the moment i think the glp1
2: thing has starting to create some decent opportunities like i recently bought diageo And a major thing that's, I think, driving that down is concerns because people that use GLP-1s tend to reduce their alcohol consumption. So I think people are extrapolating that and getting very paranoid. But I'm pretty sure people are going to be drinking Guinness and Johnny Walker in in 10 years. I'm not too concerned about that.
1: (laughs) So GLP-1s, for anyone who's not heard about them, are the new class of weight loss drugs, which are taking the US by storm, and I'm sure the UK soon enough.
2: Yeah, so that's so th- I think there's some opportunities there. I've been looking at other stocks like Pepsi and McDonald's. I don't think they're necessarily cheap enough right now, but it's starting to create some opportunities there. And then kind of a more stock specific thing going on right now. I also bought Dollar General recently. So that's an American dollar store that has been punished in the last year and was traditionally like a, a compounder that has now fallen from grace. So That's another
1: one I'm looking at. And how do you balance your two approaches then, the weird portfolio and your speculative portfolio? How do you stop yourself being tempted to put too much into individual stocks?
2: You know, I'm piling money into the weird portfolio and I'm letting that do its thing. And um, I'd say both, they help equally. So I think that the speculative portfolio helps me from meddling in the weird portfolio because, I'm able to scratch that itch. And if I see a good opportunity that's out there, I can I can buy it. And I'm not tempted to meddle with this approach I've designed. And then, um, you know, the weird portfolio helps me with the speculative portfolio because I know that, all right, I've got this money that is safe, that is to the side, and I'm not, I don't have the desire for the returns. I think that's a big part of it. I think that if you're really, Trying to generate the returns, they will continually escape you.
0: Do you ever keep track of your success rate for the single stock portfolio? I mean, you could use something like a Kelly criterion. That's why my fund portfolio is only 10%, because I've got very low expectations of my ability to beat the market.
2: Yeah. So I tracked my results pretty closely. I'd say starting around 2010, 2013, I started keeping a stock journal. And then I started a little blog in 2016 and my results were good in the, through 2014. And then basically when value started to fall apart, it didn't do as well. And then when I tracked my full results for the full period, I probably would have been better off buying a small cap value ETF. And that realization that I had around 2018, 2019, where when I looked at 10 years worth of data and I said, wow, I could have just bought a small cap value ETF and gotten the same result that prompted me to develop the weird portfolio. And then that also started me in the direction where I wanted to change my approach a little bit, where if I'm just buying a screen, that's basically what I was doing. Like I was picking my spots within the screen, but for the most part, it was a screen. I might as well just buy one of the ETFs. And my newer approach has done well over the last few years. Like it lost less than the market in 2022. And then, um, it basically matched the s and p five hundred last year, well it, well, it outperformed a little bit, but um, I'm really happy with that
1: result. That's good, because it was a pretty good year for the s and p five hundred last year.
2: yeah, and like for a concentrated portfolio that's like twelve stocks, that was a pretty decent
0: result so I read your your book, obviously, I read it a couple of times, and I think what struck me was the way you entered into actually investing. Because you you kind of were a party animal, <laughs> according to your own description. And then Dave Ramsey kind of saved you. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, so I had uh, some struggles in my 20s. I was in a significant amount of debt when I was in my late 20s. I was into investing before that. I was always kind of speculating in stocks, but yeah, I I didn't have my financial picture together. And then I used the first three baby steps that Dave Ramsey talks about where you use the debt snowball to pay off your debts. You uh, then amass an emergency fund of at least six months and you basically stay out of debt. I think once you get to the investing stuff, you need to look at other things.
0: The 9% withdrawal rate, not so good, right?
2: Yeah, 8% withdrawal rates, not good. Um, Actively managed mutual funds that are high fee, not good. Aggressively paying off kind of a low interest rate mortgage, not taking into account interest rates in that decision, I think that's not the best. But when you're getting out of debt, Dave Ramsey is the absolute best. Like you list your debts, you know, smallest to largest, you attack them with intensity. As you pay them off, you develop a bigger cash pile to go after it
1: live on ramen noodles, live on
2: ramen noodles. Don't see the inside of a restaurant unless you're working there. Basically look at it as like, I am on fire and I need to get out of this thing quickly. And I think Dave Ramsey's approach makes a ton of sense.
1: I mean, psychologically, that's right, isn't it? People need to have this mindset shift of, I need to get out of debt quickly and then get compounding in my favor with investing rather than taking money out of my pocket.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a real attitude that debt is okay, that everybody's going to stay in debt forever and, and it's just normal and it should not be normal. And once you go through that, it's almost like a, kind of a spiritual experience. Like I'd say one of the key issues is if you see money as just a tool for fun or something where I, I enjoy my life by spending money, you are doomed. Like you're never going to really amass significant capital. But going through that experience of having a ton of debt and then having to just do brutal things to get out of it, it transforms your whole perspective and you'll never look at money the same way again. And you can really get on the road where now you're going to significantly save money. So for instance, after I paid off my debt, I maintained a very similar lifestyle for years where when he's talking about that like beans and rice kind of lifestyle, I did it for a long time even after I was out of debt and that helped me accumulate the capital I'm investing today. It's quite the turnaround. Yeah, it'll, it'll really, um, if you go through that and you really devote yourself to it, it'll really transform
1: your whole perspective about things. And it sounds like the way you've approached investing is you've really codified your beliefs and your goals and put it into practice in a way that it's hard to break, right? Because you've got these rules on the weird portfolio, you've got your asset allocation you're rebalancing and you're sticking with it and with your stock selection you've got your checklist and you're not going to be tempted to you know run into the latest fad
2: yeah i'm a big fan of systems and processes so you want to find a system that works and you don't really want to just kind of do things sporadically you want to be able to really have a system and process that you can focus on that you can execute
0: well I really enjoyed that and uh, you know I really enjoyed reading your book and and also looking at your criteria for select, for selecting stocks because you know I kind of play around with it myself people wouldn't expect me to say that but I did enjoy it so thank you so much for joining us Uh thanks for having me on And just before we go if people want to find more from you
2: where should they go The best place would be my website uh, www.securityanalysis.org um that's the website where I'm blogging about my portfolio and every week I am publishing an article where every week I research a new company and I try to take it through my criteria and determine if it's a wonderful company. And then um, I also publish a uh, weekly podcast where I interview investors and uh, sometimes I will do solo episodes where I will answer questions from the audience. The name of the podcast is the Security Analysis Podcast. So it's a security analysis website, securityanalysis.org. And you can also find the podcast, if you don't want to go to my blog, you can also find it on all the major platforms like Spotify and Apple.
1: Brilliant. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.